At the church I served in Gainesville, I offered a Bible study on the book of Genesis. I prepared for weeks beforehand. I read all my commentaries, and I bought some others. And I got so excited for all the rich conversations we were going to have about this book. I came to the first night session with four pages of notes, single-spaced. I would never get through half of them. We were going to cover some of the most beautiful and exciting stuff in the whole Bible. Creation and Eden and Noah and Babel. I was ready for deep, meaningful conversation. So I threw it open to the group. What struck you? What provoked you? What moved you? What did you think of these stories, these core stories? And one man raised his hand and said, well, I don't think any of this stuff really happened. And I deflated. We had read what I think is some of the greatest literature of the last 3,000 years, and the first thing we were talking about was whether it happened. Who cares? But it wasn't his fault. This man was a, an engineer and had one parent who was a Southern Baptist, and, and he was now an atheist or an agnostic, but he had grown up in the American South and he had been taught by a lifetime of living at all of those intersections that the only way to read scripture was literally. Whether you believed in it or not, the only question worth asking was, did this really happen? Today we're starting this worship theme, Unorthodox. We're trying to unpack some of the common conceptions and misconceptions about Christianity, to question popular beliefs, to offer a fresh perspective, and ask if there is something still meaningful and powerful here for us today. And today, it's the Bible. How to read it, and maybe why. And why reading it, literally, in my opinion, is the least interesting option. And let me just say, even though the series is called Unorthodox, there's nothing orthodox about reading the Bible literally. For most of the time that these stories have existed, people understood that they were full of poetry and metaphor and illusion, that their power was not just in whether they happened just this way, but in what they meant and in the God that they reveal. But in our own time, that can be a controversial idea. For lots of people, you either read it literally and believe it all happened just that way, or you don't read it at all because you're smart and modern and you believe in science. And I think both of those ways miss out on the best stuff. So today, I'm actually going to give you three ways of reading this, of reading the Bible non-literally. I'm going to take you through that story about Jacob that Kerrigan read three times through three lenses, a historical one, a literary one, and a spiritual one. And if that sounds like more Bible than you're used to from me, it's going to be. Sorry in advance, but stick with me. I hope that we'll find something that strikes you, that provokes you, that moves you in this story. 
and I promise we're going to find something more interesting than whether it really happened. So let's jump in from a historical perspective. Reading this as a history, the story really starts with a stone standing upright in the desert over the hills of sand. There were lots of stones like it in the ancient Near East. The oldest ones that archaeologists have found date back to the 14th millennium BCE, 16,000 years ago, which is about 11,000 years before Stonehenge. These stones marked the landscape and they served lots of functions. They were places of worship and reminders of ancestors and boundary markers. And the communities around these stones probably put some of them up but a lot of others had been there since before living memory, and so they told stories about them, about how they got there. For them, this particular stone in our story marked a sacred place, a place they called Bethel for some reason, the house of God. And so they had a story to explain why it was called that, a story about how a place becomes holy. But Bethel is not the only place in this story. It starts by saying that Jacob was traveling from Beersheba to Haran. And I'll admit to you that when I read place names in the Bible, I just skip over them as quickly as possible, usually. So fine if you do, too. But just for today, let's pay attention to place names. Historical sources say that Beersheba was at the southern tip of the Israelite territory of the promised land. And Haran is in modern-day Turkey, kind of far outside that territory. So this is a story about someone who's leaving his homeland, leaving that safety and security of the place that he has known. And actually, if we back up a little bit in the story, we see that it's the story of someone being chased out of his home. Jacob's brother is trying to find him to kill him for stealing his birthright. So now he has to leave the promised land and go somewhere he's never been. And on his way, he has this dream. And we can't obviously know if that dream is historical. But the image that he gets from it is. Even though we sing about Jacob's ladder, the real translation of this thing that Jacob sees is a stairway or a ramp. What Jacob is dreaming of is something like the ziggurats that were popular in ancient Mesopotamia. These were like large, huge, flat-topped pyramids that had temples on top of them and stairs running around them leading to the top where the priests would go to talk to the god of the city who lived in that temple. Jacob dreams of this ziggurat. But Jacob's ziggurat is different, or Jacob's God is different, because this ziggurat is not in a big, important city like all the others. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Just a place between other places. And instead of going up to the top of a pyramid on stairs that only a priest could use to talk to a God who stays up there removed, Jacob's God comes down and finds him 
as he's lying on the ground in the dirt. Reading this story from a historical lens, we can see that it's a story about a God who doesn't meet our expectations, who subverts expectations to show up in human life. Okay, one reading down. Now, if we read it a second time as literature, that God becomes even more unexpected. Those towns that Jacob is moving between are not just places on a map, but they're places that are part of a story. Beersheba, the town that Jacob is leaving, is the location where both his father and grandfather made agreements with their neighbor to end a conflict. Beersheba is this place of peace. It's a place that's been known for three generations in his family as a place where you make peace, and he is being driven out of it by someone who wants to kill him. The place that he's going to, Haran, is where his grandfather Abraham lived between the time that God called Abraham to leave his own home and the time when he finally got to the promised land. Haran is this in-between place, a place for waiting it out, a place between your past and your future. Jacob is moving backwards through his grandfather's story, backwards from the promised land back to a place of waiting. And there's another level in these names too, and I promise I did cut 400 words from this sermon this morning, but this is too exciting. (laughs) Beersheba means seven wells. It's a place that's known for its water that has sustained Jacob's family through these three generations, and Haran means parched. Jacob is traveling from a place that is flowing with life to a dry and dusty land. Jacob's traveling from a place that he has known to a place that he doesn't know. He's traveling backwards in the story. He's traveling and he's in the middle of nowhere and it's on this journey in this place moving from peace to waiting. It's right here that God finds Jacob and blesses him. And if we read from a a literary perspective, we can see that God uses the ugliness of Jacob's journey to bless him. As he journeys to that parched place, God tells him, I am going to make your offspring like the dust. See the way it's blowing in every direction? You know how sand is getting everywhere on your body while you're sleeping there on the ground in the desert? I am going to make your descendants like that. They will be everywhere across the world, and everywhere that you see dust, everywhere that you see dirt will be a blessing because of you. And yes, I know you're on the run, God says. You're leaving this settled, peaceful place. You're on the move, but so am I. I'm going to travel with you. I'll go wherever you go, and all of it will be holy ground, sacred space, because I'll be with you. I know you think you're leaving the promised land, but I'm making you a new promise. Everywhere you go will be a promised land now. Look at my angels. They're going up and down. They never stop moving. I'm not a God you visit in one location. I'm a God on the move. A God for those between places. 
for those without a home, for those who are afraid. If we read this story from a literary perspective, we see it's really not about a single rock set up in the desert at all, but it's about a God who comes to join Jacob in the dirt and walks beside him on his journey. It's about a God who shows up in this nowhere of a place, in this spot that is nothing, that is common as dust, a stopover, a low point, a rock bottom. And Jacob wakes saying, surely God is in this place and I did not know it. And if God is here, where could God not be? I think that's a richer story than any literal interpretation, full of poetry and metaphor and illusion. And if you're keeping track, we're two readings down. But what does it mean for us unless we read it through another lens as scripture? As a story that is not just about a God who was there for Jacob, but a God who is there for us. If I start to read this story as scripture, I no longer ask, did God really meet Jacob in that place and that time? But I ask, where is God trying to meet me? In this place, this time. As I read about Jacob's journey, I ask myself questions like, what life am I leaving behind and what is God calling me toward? Where am I on that journey between full wells and parched dust right now? When was I at my low point, and what gave me the strength to wake up the next morning and keep going forward? And who around me might be there right now? What is the blessing in this dust that is clinging to me that I can't get rid of? Where do I expect God to show up, and where does God surprise me? What's the place that I can point to for others and say, God is here and I didn't know it. Reading this story as scripture, I stop worrying about the question, is this true? And I ask the question, could this possibly be true for me? At one of my lowest points, I was facing the sleep deprivation of being a new parent, combined with the exhaustion and anxiety of a particularly difficult birth story. Nola had finally come home with us a month before after eight weeks in the NICU, which was after five weeks of hospital bed rest, which was after another eight weeks of anxious waiting. And now, with her only home a month, it was time for me to leave on my annual retreat with my covenant group that I had booked well before. We were going to a convent in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, for a weekend together. That's how much we like each other. I felt guilty going, but also emotionally and spiritually parched. 
in need of rest. I could have fallen asleep on a stone like Jacob does. And the option of having a bed to myself in a quiet retreat center sounded amazing. At some point in that weekend, it came time for me to do my check-in. That was that is part of our practice as a group. Two hours in which I got to tell the story of my year. I was too exhausted to give it any structure or theme or poetry or metaphor. I just spewed out events. And after a little silence, one of my friends asked, what are you doing for spiritual practice right now? And the question hit me hard because the answer was nothing. Which was also what I was doing in every other area of my life. Work, health, marriage, nothing. It felt like my friend had pointed to all the things I was just letting slide for months now. Showing how I was just treading water, waiting and I felt terrible about it, about all the people I was letting down on a daily basis, including myself, including God. I had gone through this incredible, incredible birth, and now I wasn't even praying. I tried to explain to her how busy it could be doing nothing or getting nothing done and how tiring and finally, I gave up, and I settled back into the silence, and then a thought crossed my mind. I have been singing, I said, to Nola. I guess that's kind of been a spiritual practice. But before I could get that second sentence out, the words caught in my throat and tears started streaming down my face and suddenly everything I understood about my life in that season changed. It was like God had slid down a banister from heaven except that God had always been there and that was the point. God had always been there in that moment, in all of the others, singing to my baby girl to try to get her to sleep barely getting my work done, failing to have any interaction with my friends, being tired and crabby everywhere I went, in all of that time when I had been no good to anyone, when I was getting nothing done, when I didn't even have the energy to pray, there was God with me. Down in the dirt, in that rocky season, journeying from the safety of what I knew into that unknown future, God was there where I didn't expect them. And if there, when I least deserved it, when I hadn't done anything to earn it, when I didn't have the energy to say thank you, where could God not be? If there, then why not anywhere? Why not everywhere that I went and everywhere you go too? It may be unorthodox to say it, but I don't care whether someone named Jacob set up that stone at Bethel. I basically don't care if there even was a Jacob. 
or a Bethel, or a Beersheba, or a Haran. I know I've been to my own dusty nowheres, haunted by guilt, driven from security. I know I've laid down alone for many miserable nights of not sleeping. And though I didn't know it at the time, the God of love was always there with me, there and everywhere, every place, the gate of heaven, the house of God, literally. Literally.